Hey guys, there are not a lot of people that I really, really admire and respect like Alex Harris. This guy has done it all. In fact, the one word that I think of when I think of Alex Harris is tough. Tough enough to stand on the seven highest peaks on the seven continents. Tough, as, tough enough to make his way to the South Pole unsupported. Tough enough to be the first human being on earth to walk across the empty quarter of the Arabian Peninsula by himself. This guy is as tough as anybody I've ever met in my life. And today you're gonna hear a couple of powerful things that Alex learned and why he was willing to leave his job and go pursue his dreams. And I hope you're as inspired by Alex as I am when this episode is over. So here it is, Alex Harris on this week's episode of Unbeatable. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable. Alex, thank you so much for taking time and being a guest on this episode of Unbeatable. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. For people that are listening, if you're driving in your car right now, you're going to notice right away that Alex has a very different accent with the English language than I do. That's because he's coming to us today from South Africa. Thanks for taking the time many time zones away and a whole nother continent away for being part of this episode today. Absolutely. I'm, uh, I'm excited to be part of it in a, in a small way. So thanks for having me. Yeah, Alex, you're a guy, we had a chance to sit down and talk in South Africa this year um, in May, and I tried to say it to you very briefly then, but you're a guy that I really, really respect, and honestly, I look up to just because of how tough you are. Well, thank you for the compliment, but uh, you know what, I mean, I've just been blessed with unusual opportunities and just great people through, you know, through my life. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's penned an unusual story, but it's, it has very little to do with me though. Yeah. Well, we're going to get into some of the incredible accomplishments that you have over your lifetime. Uh, you've done a couple of things that I have just dreamed about being able to do. And not only have you, you've done them, but you've done them more than once, like conquering Everest and a few other of those very extreme endurance challenges. Um, before we get into some of your accomplishments on a bike, bicycle, or on a mountain or in the desert, um, I want to talk a little bit about your opinion of what it looks like to be tough. So I just use this language with you that I almost never use with other people, but for you, this word really fits. I really consider you to be one of the toughest guys that I know. And tough for me is not just strong or fast, but there's something inside of you, a, a grit inside of you that keeps mm. going. And I just wanted to ask you, this isn't a trick question, but I was just going to ask you out of the gate, like, what would you say is tough? What makes one man or one woman tough compared to another? So I think... It has to do with how close they get to their potential. And, you know, a lot of the stuff I've been involved in, I guess most of the sort of, you know, the, the kind of athletic world would consider it extreme. Yeah. And it's extreme because the circumstances are extreme, the weather, the conditions. And so the skill set is, is, is a very specific skill set. 
And so you lie outside of the bell curve of the majority of people. And that's not a fair reflection yeah. of toughness, you know. For me, toughness is more around sort of how God has made us. But very few of us get to experience our full potential. And that stretch from where most of us live and operate in to the edge of how God's made us is where the kind of tough realm exists. And for me, that's an exciting place because that implies that all of us have the ability innately to do tough, really tough things. Few of us have the ability to do extreme things, but that's why I think extreme is just an unfair descriptor, you know, and for me, tough. And that's why we kind of call our race the toughest race on earth. Yeah, there's a a thousand more races that are more extreme, but are there a, a true reflection and will they get most people who are relatively athletic and, and, and passionate about cycling, uh, uh, you know, give them a fair test? No. So for yeah. me, tough, this thing, toughness is something that exists in all of us, but very few of us get the opportunity or the desire or a combination of circumstance, timing and experience to step beyond what we're comfortable with and discover actually how tough God has really made us. Yeah, I love your description because you're you're talking about the people that have the opportunity and take it to live on the edge of the bell curve. And man, I think you just described it beautifully. Listen, all people have this toughness that's inside them, but whether or not they're willing to explore it, test it, live there, that's a whole nother story. And a lot of people are dreaming of doing some tough things. I'm talking right now about the lady who has a job that she would love to do. And she knows that this is mentally tough or it's going to be yeah. uh, academically challenging as well as physically or the guy who has a dream in front of him to do something. But when they really think about how tough it's going to be, they start to back down because mm -hmm. they're not sure they have what it takes to make meet the tough uh the the tough requirements right and i can't think of anybody literally there's not a guy i know or a gal that i know that has mm -hmm. been able to face challenges physically extreme challenges like you have and been able to you know put yourself to the test and not all it doesn't always go in your favor right yeah but that's you know i, I guess the journey is is one of discovery and if, if, if I had to list, you know, if you asked me to kind of list the ingredients of what toughness DNA looks like, I'm convinced there's, there's nothing on that list that we're not born with that's not in our DNA. Yeah, I agree. And so, you know, the, the question is, how, how do you get to the place where you discover that God's actually made you way more resilient, you know, the ability to persevere way more than you ever thought? the ability to be motivated for long periods of time, to be hungry, to be determined, to be able to uplift yourself in, in, in really dark hours. These things exist in us, but the process of discovering them and then sort of uh, growing them like any yeah. faculty takes right. time, it takes risk and the, and the willingness to fail. And I think that's maybe the key thing is that, you know, we, 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 as a species, we tend to follow the path of least resistance. Yep. And, and that's not going to get us uh, a lot of failure. And that's not going to get us a lot of reflection. 
And so reflection, you know, is, is a product of failure and it's, it's a great learning opportunity because we get to realize actually this is what we could do, this is what we couldn't do. And if I'm in the same place again, how could I react differently right. and get a better outcome, you know? And over yeah. a course of time, your skill set grows and now, you know, you're doing tougher things and people think you're tougher. No, you're just getting closer to how God has made you to right. your potential. And that's an exciting thing, you know? Yeah, I hope somebody who's listening to this right now while they're out running um, on their ear pods or somebody who's driving and hearing you is hearing being tough doesn't guarantee everything is going to go in your favor. Actually, taking the risk doesn't even mean that things are going to go the way that you want them to go. But it's saying I'm willing to fail to see what my real limits or my real potential are. And maybe... All of us have this degree of toughness DNA in us. I totally agree with what you said. But some people are just not willing to put it to the test because the failure is more terrifying than for them than actually, you know, chasing their dreams. And I hope somebody's hearing you right now and saying, you know what? I'm going to put myself to the test. I'm going to try it. I'm going to go chase my dreams. Yeah, I think, you know, when you've done this long enough, you you start realizing that the, the greater risk is getting a, a fair stretch down your life and starting to suspect that you might have had it in you to actually have done the really difficult thing you wanted to do when you were wow. young because life has now so shown you hints, you know. That's a far greater risk than going out and failing and trying it again or trying something else because each of those are, are sort of little junctures that take you where, you know, God really wants you to be. And you know, I mean, there's some sort of trite movies like Yes Man with Jim Carrey and that, but they got great right. learning. Yeah. Just embrace the opportunity to do something where there's a, a, a low chance of success. And that's not saying being, uh, you know, like just crazy and daredevil. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not a, you know, people think I love adrenaline stuff. When I was a kid, you know, I'm relatively <laughs> risk averse. Yeah. Strangely right. enough, I've just learned to understand risk. And I've also learned how to manipulate, uh, you know, variables to to kind of suit the endeavor that I'm that I'm involved in. The other thing is that when you get into this this little sort of bandwidth between what you are and what your potential is, and you know, going back to that sort of description yep. of the bell, you know, sort of right. creeping outside the eighty percent, you must know that inherently there's now high risk of failure because right. one. You don't have the skills necessarily as you do this thing for the first time. You don't have the experience. And and that is probably one of the biggest detractors for people, you know, when they fail initially. I mean, I think about my climbing career that became literally a career. I, I almost gave up right at the start of really? it. Really? We yeah. yeah we were, huh. you know, I got very lucky. I, I was with a couple of guys on a mountain in Russia. We got caught in a storm on the summit and the other two guys were struck by lightning. One was killed instantly. Wow. I was untouched. And, you know, the other guy, we don't know whether he survived in the long run, but, I mean, I was young. I was 21, I think. And yeah. I remember for months saying, you know, I'd only been climbing for a handful of years, but this was really the first big sort of alpine stuff I was doing. Uh -huh. And I sat around with friends multiple times, you know, in a bar saying, you know what, I'm done there. I, like, this this is crazy. I, I can't do this. And I almost came close to that point. But I look back now, and this was in the early 90s, you know, 
for whatever reason, you, you, I, I didn't make the decision to, to quit and yeah. I carried on right. and you get more experience. And so what experience does, oddly enough, is that it allows you to see a risky outcome at the end of the journey. Uh-huh. And so you don't, you know, like, for example, K2. I mean, I went and led a, a, a team of South Africans to climb Broad Peak, which is an 8,000-meter peak yeah. next to K2, the second highest mountain. The long-term objective was to go to, broad, uh, to K2 and be the first, you know, Africans to climb K2. So we're climbing up Broad Peak, looking across at K2, looking at the lines and the avalanches mm-hmm. and trying to get a sense of when, you know, is there a good line. And long story short, I mean, I, I, I called off that expedition because the, the conditions were really dangerous. But uh, two or three years later, the opportunity to go to K2 came into my life and I said no to the guys. And so right in that moment, the risk of K2 is not when I'm at 8,000 meters on the bottleneck yeah. assessing whether right. or not I can get across this icefall. It's sitting in my living room, recognizing that the decision I'm about to make will head me down a path that has high risk. And that's what wisdom does. That's what experience yeah. does. It just right. backtracks in time and allows you to see while the opportunity is exciting, this is going to inexorably get me to a place of high risk. Yeah. You know? Right. When you're young, you say yes, and now you're suddenly on the mountain, and now you realize you don't have the skills. You know, then you're in high risk. And <laughs> That's not a good place to be. Yep. No, so it's a balance. You know, it's it's about recognizing that you've got to take risk early on, and you've got to say yes to adventures. But with that comes experience that allows right. you to qualify real risk. You know, and and I guess my point is never let let real risk. Uh, detract you from the opportunity. You know, you can still be circumspect and excited and young and embark on something. And I'm convinced that, you know, if our heart is right, uh, you know, God typically leads us down uh-huh. the path. He closes the door and he leads us somewhere else because we're not meant to be on the top of K2. Right. You know? It's simple. Yeah, I hope people just heard what you said. You're sitting in your living room and you have a dream in front of you and you recognize there's high risk with this. If I start down this path, I could quickly get in over my head. But you also, I think every tough man or woman that I know said, I just want to know if I have what it takes to meet that challenge. They don't foolishly um, tackle the risk. They're just trying to see, do I have inside me what it takes? And the truth is, no one will ever learn their potential. No one will ever learn their real abilities without pushing themselves and actually even pushing themselves to the limits or beyond the limits a little bit and then recognizing, okay, I think I just found my limits. And I would argue 99%, that bell curve is humongous with the people that sit on the couch and never do it. The 1% of the people say, I don't know if this is going to work. This actually may blow up in my face, but I just got to know inside me if I have what it takes. And then they'll go, I'm using air quotes now, climb that mountain because they want to know if they have what it takes to climb that mountain. And you are a guy who has conquered mountains literally on every continent on the planet. Um, we're going to get into some of your accomplishments as a track cyclist um, in a, on a mountain bike in the empty quarter in the in the uh, you know in the desert. But what you did in mountains is one of the things that inspires me about you, Alex. I have always been inspired by mountaineers and the guys and gals that are climbing the world's yeah. highest peaks. And you've summited the seven highest 
points on the seven continents um, and done it successfully. Very few human beings on earth can say that, but you would never make it to that summit if you weren't on the couch and decided, you know what? I don't even know if I have what it takes, but I'm going to go see. Exactly. And you don't have to start out with Everest. You can start with one of the lower ones. <laughs> yeah. You probably shouldn't thing. start out with Everest, right? <laughs> yeah. The thing that inspires me most, look, I want to talk about the times that you summited Everest. I want to talk about the times that you rode your fat bike across the empty quarter. I want to talk about the Mungo race and the Berkeley marathon. I consider one of the toughest um, ultra marathons on earth. Um, and the fact that you've tried them all and conquered almost all of them is stunning. But one of the things I think I'm even more impressed by is you made a decision early on and you decided to follow your dreams. And it was a really risky decision because let's just be honest, 1996, you're the number one sales representative representative for your company and you decide to step away from your job and go really pursue your vision. And that decision alone, the very few people on the bell curve would be willing to make. They really want to do something in the future, but they're stuck doing this right now. And because this yeah. pays the bills, it's just too scary to step away from it. So they never step away. And they end up becoming what you described just a moment ago, the guy or the gal that's sitting on the couch yeah. years later and realizing, I think I had a lot more potential and I never gave it a try. So can you just describe what it felt like when you're the top sales rep and you decide, I think I'm yeah. going to step away from my job and go pursue my vision for my life? Yeah. <laughs> well, so sure. I mean, I, yeah, let me backtrack. So that's, that's January, February 96 when I resigned. But if I backtrack sort of five, six months midway through 95, I was invited to join an expedition uh, that was going to Everest uh, it was a South African expedition. All right. It was organized by a much older guy in the mountain club. So our National Mountain Federation has got various provincial, uh, you know, sort of chapters. And obviously I was part of the, the local one. And I'm invited to join this, this group because I'm a young up-and-coming climber. I'm only 23, 24 at the time, but I've been to Russia on a number of expeditions. I've uh -huh. climbed the 70,000-meter peak. So I'm excited. I mean, it's just you know, all, all ready for Everest. They, you know, they're raising money. But then a couple of uh, interesting things intervene. And one of them is that the Sunday Times, which is our big national, uh -huh. one of our big national weekend newspapers, and this is now November 1995, they put out a massive double-page spread that they're sponsoring the first South African expedition to go to Everest in three, all four right. months. Now, this is not our expedition. This is someone else. Uh -huh. Our expedition has a permit for the post-monsoon season, which is September. Oh, this yeah. This expedition okay. was led by a guy called Ian Woodle. Long story short, they go in the spring, in the fateful season when eight yeah. or nine people yeah. killed. John Krakow writes that famous book, Into Thin yeah. Air. Right. The South African expedition disintegrates. The three lead climbers leave, the doctor resigns, this guy's fired. The leader is seen as this really kind of uh, maniacal, uh, you know, yeah. sort of or, 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 uh, totalitarian. And they succeed in getting a lady to the top. 
Now, while this is happening, our team are failing to find money because we're now going to be the second South African expedition. <laughs> right. All of a sudden, the leader pulls out. He can't make it anymore. So everyone looks at me one day in a meeting and, and says, you're the, you're the most experienced. And yes, I was the most experienced at that point. But was I experienced enough to lead a team to Everest? No right. ways. Right. But, you know, now the whole game has changed. And so in the next couple of months, I realized that if there was any hope of getting to Everest in the post-monsoon season, I needed to dedicate most of my time to raising money and, and trying to lead this team. And so... You know, that was kind of the, the kind of uh, f sort of Rubicon in in January, February, when I, I said to my, you know, my boss, listen, it's been a great time, but this is a juncture in my career. And I didn't know the Lord. So, you know, there was no sort of praying about it or seeking guidance or any of that. I just made a call, resigned, and the rest is history. You know, we went to Everest with no Sherpas, no oxygen. We got our butts kicked, but we survived. Oh, you know? that's incredible. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm just sitting there thinking about that decision, though. You had to realize I'm giving up all of my security. I'm giving up what is paying the bills right now. And not only yeah. am I giving it up for this physical challenge of conquering Everest, but I'm going to have to raise the money and lead a team. None of that you have any experience or a whole lot of help doing, or at least, uh, mm. you know, all of this is a challenge in front of you. And that amount of challenge, I think, would freak most people out. And they would say, you know what? I'm just going to stay safe and comfortable. I'm going to keep working this job that I hate instead of pursuing my dream. And I really do want to say, Alex, man, one of the things that has inspired me most about you is the fact that you would be willing to leave and go pursue your dream. I think there's millions of people that wish they could do what you did, but they're just yeah. struggling with the confidence or overcoming the fear to do it. So could you just for a very brief moment, talk yeah. to somebody who's listening right now and saying they're listening and thinking, I hate my job. I have a dream, but my job pays the bills and I don't know if this dream is going to work. So I'm just going to stay comfortable. What would you say to them? You know, so I would say that God has designed this universe in such a way that we can never really fail. And yet all the markers and the metrics around us that are number-based uh, are, are designed in the opposite direction. They're designed to describe success or failure. And so we naturally gravitate to the left side of that graph in, in terms of failure when all the evidence is stripped that we're going to still get our salary yeah. that right. costs a million. But if you're able to step back and, and, and get a hint of a bigger picture, the, the bigger picture is that we can't fail because the DNA of the universe uh, deems it impossible. Now, does that mean you can't get fired? Does it mean you're going to, you know, <laughs> right? Fall off the side of a mountain. Yeah. All of that stuff. Yes, absolutely. But I mean, really, really fail. The stuff that keeps us up at night, that makes us profoundly concerned hardly any of that ever ever comes to pass yeah the, right you know so we waste an enormous amount of energy and you can only test that theory by taking smaller steps and and, and right. taking smaller risks but i can say that i had a sense of just how long 
life was going to be, you know, and, and that sounds uh-huh. odd when you're, young, when you're in your 20s, maybe, you know, that comes naturally. And so maybe it's a, 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 a gift of young, younger people just to, you know, take risk or, or maybe there's a, a personality type that generally is, is more risk averse. And I think that's yeah. probably the case. But there's, a, there's an idea that we call uh, borrowed momentum. And and this was definitely at play when when I made that decision. And borrowed momentum right. is this sort of dynamic where around you there are teams succeeding, there are people that are motivated. There's a corporate momentum that you can, without realizing it, borrow and infuse your team and your kind of go, and and suddenly you're not seeing all the potential failures. You're not seeing all the potential risks. You're just trying to problem solve, you know? Now, we uh-huh. didn't know any about that. I mean, it would be a, a two decades before I studied sports psychology, before I started doing some really, really tough things and articulating some of these ideas. But looking back, I realized that was the dynamic at play. And and the yeah. point being, surround yourself with similar ideal people surround yourself with people with similar passions with similar interests because at any given time someone in the team is going to be having a tough time trying to figure out whether they can do this or not but someone else in the team is going to be feeling like there's no way we cannot yeah, do this we right. thrive and so the idea of borrowed momentum simply says look make a tough decision but surround yourself with people that have got a similar goal and shared values and expectations. And all of a sudden, it's not just you facing the, this insurmountable task. There's actually a, a greater force behind you. You know, you, you're not just one breaking wave. You're this kind of shoreline on an ocean that's yeah. moving just behind your shoulders, if that makes sense, you know? Yeah, I love the description because if you're really going to step out of the bell curve, as you've used that language, and if you're really going to go pursue your dreams, and it's a big risk, and you're letting you're leaving a lot behind, one of the ways that you can kind of work the odds in your favor, for lack of a better term, is to be around people that are are doing what you want to do, or at least are heading in the same direction, and they kind of sweep you along in the process, and now you've got a group of people instead of going it alone, which is really, really hard to do. I mean, being the first guy, being Edmund Hillary and the first guy and standing on the top of Everest is one thing. Being part of a team of people going up the top of Everest is a whole nother thing. Um, And there are some people out there that are sitting in this dead end job. They hate their life and they're saying, I wish I could, or I, I, I hope I will one day. And I, I hope they're hearing your advice. Surround yourself with a team. If you want to go conquer something that seems like Mount Everest kind of challenge to you, surround yourself with a team of people that are trying to conquer it and then go do it together um, and get swept along in that borrowed momentum. You know, Jeff, another idea is that, uh, and it's a, a responsibility that I, f- I feel the weight of, uh, you know, profoundly, and that is that our lives are meant to to testify we, we're meant to witness to people about the dna of a greater god a, you know right someone greater than us and yeah. and there's no witness by by saying no and just sticking in a routine that's not a testimony right that story will not change anyone's life 
rather the story that, you know what, I, I resigned, I, I thought I, I had an idea, and we failed miserably. Even that, even that, as miserable as it sounds, is a greater testimony and a stronger uh -huh. witness to us as human beings and our DNA than the story of, no, I did nothing. I took no action, you know. And, and that for me is so key. And I think people just don't feel the, the, the weight of responsibility of their lives being a testimony because they think, well, I don't do anything with my life. So what can my life witness? But that's the whole point. We have yeah. a different voice. We have different talents. Right. We, yeah. You know, we, we do things differently. And, and that's precisely how our life counts in a different way to everyone else's. But it counts when we step out and we say, okay, I'm going to I'm going to take a risk and if it fails that story alone is is going to be a testimony to a whole lot of people. Alex, you're using the exact same language that we used on the first episode ever of Unbeatable. That is the language that we use to launch this podcast because I just wanted people to hear don't don't settle for the safe life. Don't settle for yeah. comfort and complacency. Go take the risk. And if you're going to fail, just fail spectacularly. But at least you've yeah. tried something that other people sit back and say, wow, man, that gal or that guy has a lot of courage to even try it. I wish I could try it. Um, even if it turned out as bad as it did for them, I wish I had that kind of courage. You're you're firing me up right now, Alex. Um, <laughs> I want to talk about the seven summits because... As I mentioned to the listening audience, there are few human beings on planet mm -hmm. Earth that have stood on the top of the highest peaks on all seven continents. So yeah. can you tell a little bit of what it took for you to be able to summit Antarctica and Africa and Everest and Denali and just stand on the highest peaks on the planet? Yeah, so, you know, my personal journey was about 15 years, and that's a long time because guys are knocking it off in seven months now, you know, crazy numbers. <laughs> seven but, summits in seven months, that's insane. It, yeah. It's totally nuts. But, you know, when I started, uh, the very first guys, uh, two guys called Frank Wells and Dick Bass, and Frank Wells was a, a, a businessman, a wealthy guy. Dick Bass owned a ski resort and they mm -hmm. just had this crazy idea. Neither of them had the skills to do it. So they put a, a logistical team together and they financed it. Now, that was in the late 80s, I think, that uh, that Dick Bass finally got up yeah. Everest. Wow. 86 or 87. I started uh, in 89. And, you know, we're talking about the at the time, more people had been into space than it started. Right. Yeah, you know? yeah. So it, the, the formula I hope was people, I'm just going to say what you said again. I need listeners to hear this. At the time that you were doing this, more people had been in space than stood on the top of the seven summits. Go ahead. Exactly. So, and you, you know, there's no shortage of, uh, well, then library of, of, of how to get into space and all the astronaut biographies, but no one knew how to go about the seven summits. Right. You know? it was, uh, I mean, it was really 96 and, and the, the commercial expeditions that brought to the world a formula that you could take someone with reasonable experience, surround them with guides, and then get to the top of Everest. And that came off the back of what Frank and Dick Bass had created with the Seven Summit story. So, you know, when I when I first went to Kilimanjaro in 89, uh, I remember this idea sitting on the summit there thinking, I mean, it was pretty crazy that 
I could stare down on the continent of yeah. half a billion people or whatever right. it was then and realize not one of them was higher than I was. Like in that moment, I was the highest <laughs> person on the continent yeah. of Africa. And that idea evolved. And over the next couple of years, we went to Aconcagua, the highest in South uh -huh. America in 1992. And so the idea was forming. But now as South Africans, in fact, in the late 80s, it was only the first time you could go into Tanzania to climb Kilimanjaro yeah, because yeah. there was apartheid. We were on this hit right. list and, and Tanzania was one of the countries we were banned. So we couldn't travel till the late 80s anyway. But I had just got out of school. I mean, I finished school in 88. I wanted to be a pilot and get into the U.S. and become an astronaut, but that, that never happened. So I started climbing mountains. To so you decided space. I'm going to climb up to space. Yeah. Exactly. You know, so... By the early 90s and having two or three, and then I mentioned those Russian trips uh, with the with Perestroika yeah. and kind of uh -huh. Glasnost in 92, I was now established as a young up-and-coming climber in the South African Mountain Club. The Russian Federation clubs were inviting us on exchange programs. And right. so 92, 93, 94, three successive years, we went to different parts of Russia and some of the former Soviet Union states climbing mountains, mm -hmm. including Elbrus, which is the highest in Europe. Yeah. And so this idea started formulating, and we knew in the back of our minds the culmination of this idea happens to be a mountain that's 29,028 feet. That's right. the highest on the planet. <laughs> but we, didn't, we yeah. didn't spend too much energy thinking about that. You know, We knew that if we took the small steps, that big step would take care of itself somewhere along the timeline. And 96 was really the culmination of... Uh, you know, that sort of journey. But it would still take another, gosh, it took me another nine years to get to the summit of Everest because we failed in 96. But what happened in 96 was we got back, we were broke, we'd spent all our savings. Yeah. We had, yeah. Remember, I, we had no Sherpas because we couldn't right. afford them, no oxygen. We couldn't afford that. So, you know, we thought if we get up Everest, we're going to be rich and famous. It's going to be easy to meet women. I mean, <laughs> so just, put my picture on the magazine cover. Yes. And the money will just you know, start flowing in. Exactly. Like like Beck Weathers, you know, but it, it, it just wasn't meant to be. And so the opposite happened. We, we were just broke, unemployed. And, and a couple of us realized we had a skill set that people in our country were now starting to want to utilize. Right. Yeah. So like Dick Bass in the 80s, there were now South Africans that wanted to start climbing the seven. And we started a business that then facilitated that journey for them, at, while at the same time made possible our own journey to complete the seven summits. Yeah. Um, I, I hope people heard what you said. You attempted it in 96. You don't make it to the summit. You're broke. You left your job. Like this could have been yeah. catastrophic. But you yeah. pivot and learn to take that experience. And, and I would say failing to get to the top of Everest is not really a failure because you learn a lot of things along the way that you can do different next time. But you take that experience and start um, leading others up the seven summits. I could go into your resume. It would take the rest of this show. But just real quickly, how many times have you summited Kilimanjaro? 19 out of 20 uh all right 20 trips. Yeah, there was one one trip when the snow was waist high which was just yeah. unbelievable we didn't get up it was a mountain bike trip but yeah and and um everest you've conquered everest how many times so i've physically stood on the summit just once the other two uh -huh. times we got to so one expedition in 2003 on summit day we got to about 8500 
and okay. the weather just got bad, so we were a few hours away. And then in '96, we got to about seven and a half thousand meters, and we just, you know, we, we just ran out of steam. And that amounts to about 180 days of my life on the mountain over nine wow. years to spend one hour and 15 minutes on top. So, you know, you, you got to make sure you want that hour badly. Yeah. I was going to say six months of your life dedicated to spending one hour and a few minutes on top of the world, standing on top of the world. That's dedication. Um, I'm totally nerding out right now, Alex, because I'm a guy who is just blown away by mountaineers. And yeah. I know because of lots of really difficult mountains that I've been able to walk up and down in the U.S. military, I know just how brutal that is. For the people that have never attempted any mountain, they may not recognize what you're talking about and just how difficult this is. There's a reason why there were more people in space than on the seven summits because of just how rough this is. But I also learned something going up a mountain. And it sounds like you've, uh, you know, you put this uh, principle into practice too. When you conquer one mountain, the next bigger mountain starts to become a little bit more accessible, right? And when you conquer that one, then the next bigger mountain starts to become a little bit accessible. Like you learn a few things when you do the medium size and that makes the larger mountain more uh, able to, makes you more, more ready for the larger mountain. And it sounds like that's kind of what you ended up doing as the first African, first South African to lead some teams to the top of the world on the seven continents. Yeah, and I've also, you know, I've only begun to realize this, uh, honestly, in the last sort of three years. And this for me is one of the most profound learnings that my, my career has, has given me. And, and that is that there isn't a single moment in our lives that doesn't count. Every single minute yeah. is Every a chance second to counts. learn. It's a chance to learn how to do something, to glean, to gain insight, to reach a crossing with knowledge that the left turn gets you lost in the wood and the right turn gets you through the woods. Right. And the problem is we don't pay attention to all the stuff that we think will not count, but it's all that stuff that counts and it compounds over our lives. And yeah. you know, it's, it's something I've... In fact, it's ultra endurance racing that's that's taught me that, you know. And it's a strange lesson because I remember what, one of the first times that I was racing a race in South Africa called the Freedom Challenge, which is uh -huh. a 2,000 kilometer, or well, I don't know what that is, what's that, about 700 miles. I mean, it's they're further races, but it's still pretty far. But <laughs> yeah, it's in the middle it's... of winter. There's no electronic navigation. You, you're uh -huh. only allowed your maps and your compass. And, it's, and because it's in the middle of winter, it's sub-zero all the time in the evening. And I remember uh, reaching a point where I thought, I should pay attention here. And then I, I suddenly killed that thought with the, 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 the counter thought that, no, don't waste your energy. You're never going to come here again. Little did I know I would come and race this year after year after really? year. Yeah. And so that moment at that juncture – I lost that opportunity forever. Yeah. And so now when I'm at a place, I no longer have the thought that I can't be observant now and learn from this because I think I might never come here again. I know one that the future is impossible to predict. Yeah, And right. whether or not I get back to this place, what I learn in this moment by paying attention, I carry with me for the rest of my life. 
And if you think about how we behave on a day-to-day basis, it's no different how humans learn. And, and we become more effective because we have an encounter with someone, we right. react in a certain way, it doesn't get a great result, but we observe. And, and, the, and the skill there we call mindfulness. It's being right. mindful mm-hmm. of the moment, you know, understanding that how you react in this moment was the outcome productive. And if it wasn't, react differently the next time you're in yeah. a similar moment. And I'm convinced, you know, guys like John Maxwell and, 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 and the real sort of uh, kind of patriarchs in leadership have been consistently able to do this through their lives and so have learned how to embrace the moment so that yeah. it comes. And what we see as this incredible leader is really the distilled essence of a life of being mindful of multitudes of millions of moments. Right. Yeah. And, and that's only really profoundly struck me in the last three years. You know? So every time I'm on a peak or somewhere, Every day is just a new, it's a new beginning. It's a new horizon. And it's an incredible place to be because, you know, you no longer get bored. You no longer have to go and climb Everest right. to be thrilled by That's right. yeah. the landscape or the horizon. I can scramble up a small little hill with my kids and be as enthrilled. Look, don't get me wrong. Standing on the summit of Everest at sunrise was a special It's pretty cool, hour. right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was worth 180 days yeah. know, sleeping in the tent. But... I got home and I found, you know, I still had to stand in the queue when I went to the grocery right. store. Yeah. I, I was still cut off by traffic. They, you know, they drove like they didn't know I climbed Everest. So, <laughs> right. you know, the fundamentals of my life had not changed. Success that I thought had not changed the fundamentals, only my perspective on what was possible. You know, that, that idea of stretching and stepping into the kind of edge of the bell curve now yeah. became excited me, you know. That's how God made me, but I got to take that step to figure out exactly how He's made me. Yeah, and just observing what's happening around you makes you better prepared. Just like those small mountains make you better prepared for the big ones, observing what's happening around you makes you mm-hmm. better prepared for whatever the future holds. And I was just thinking as you talked, um, Alex, that my victories, the big accomplishments of life, they were thrilling at the time, but the most powerful lessons that I learned in life usually weren't the big victories. It was the failures. And those failures were so influential. I Mm. changed, I made or I did things differently because of the failure. And I'm much more impacted by the things that I attempted that didn't go right than the times that I attempted something and it did go right which itself says, get off the couch and give it a try. And even if it fails, you might learn something and really grow in the process. So playing it safe really isn't that safe anymore. Get up and give it a try. Uh, I want to transition to conversation for a bit because not only are you tough on the mountain, but you're fast. And I mean really fast on the bike. So you are a track cycle champion um, can you describe a little bit of that before you decide to put that to the test in the extremes and go do the empty quarter um, on a fat bike for a thousand kilometers? But tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, racing at the master's level and winning silver and gold um, on a bike on a track. Yeah, so it's it's so strange, you know, the whole track cycling uh you know, the introduction in my life was just really a stirring from the Lord to go down. And I mean, obviously, I'd done a lot of mountain biking, 
and through adventure racing and just mountain biking itself. But track cycling was the first time that I really competed in any form of cycling. And there are two directions a track cyclist can go. One is as a pursuiter and one is as a sprinter. And then within the pursuiting, the disciplines are the individual pursuit, the individual time trial, uh, you know, the the long lap races. They are typically Uh the life type of athlete, scrawny. Then you get the sprinters who are the the kilo time trial, the (laughs) thousand-meter time trial, the Olympic sprint, the 1500s, the the match sprint Uh one-on-one. And they are typically bulkier, you know, guys. Yeah, and legs like tree trunks, right? Pretty much, pretty yeah. much, and and that's pretty much where I ended up going into sprinting, <laughs> you know. And it never occurred to my coach or myself that actually I might have a real talent for ultra endurance uh-huh. racing. And so you know, we, we we started down the sprinting, and you can't cross over. They they such periodized right. programs. If you go to Worlds or if you compete in the in the national championships, you really compete as, as one or the other because the, the disciplines are so different, you know. And so it's the strangest thing that uh, every season, I, as I started exploring more and more ultra-endurance mountain biking and, and thinking maybe this is really my niche, I'd ask my track cycling coach, Coach, are we going to do sprinting or pursuiting? And he's like, no, 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 you're a sprinter. We're doing sprinting, yeah, you know. Yeah. So, uh, it, but it's it's just a strange thing. But it's a very tense affair, the the sprinting game on yeah. track cycling. You know, it's the match sprint where you're one-on-one. It's a cat and mouse game. It's explosive, the kilo time trial. Um, you know, my, my coach used to have a, a saying when it came to the, the kilo time trial, there were always two types of approaches to training or to the race. You, you start it and then you built up to a maximal effort over the sort uh-huh. of minutes and a few seconds. But or the alternative, which was his, you go as hard as you can till you blow, and then you go twice as hard you know? <laughs> until you die. Yeah, and that's uh, you know I've kind of taken that philosophy pretty much into all all my my sort of arenas because you're never really going to die, and you never really know how hard twice as hard is. Uh, you know if you have right. you haven't yeah. blown. But there's, there's incredible learnings and, you know, I, I mean, I haven't competed seriously for a few years and I always, you know, Nadia, my wife says, you, you need to go back to track because it gives you a good, you know, your arms buff up a bit and your chest yeah. buffs up because yeah. you're doing strength, whereas ultra endurance, you just get skinny, you know. But yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's a strange thing. And, and as I say, if I went back now competitively, I would probably try and think about the pursuiting because I've got such a great endurance base now after years of like really crazy right, ultra right. endurance racing, you know? So it's, it's a bit of, I'm a bit of an anomaly there, I guess. Eh? Yeah. For the people that are listening and they don't get a chance to see you in the video, you're not the really big dude. You're a pretty thin guy because of all of those very long races. Yeah. <laughs> but the fact that you were able to compete at the sprint level and win at the sprint level is just amazing. I got to know though, the empty quarter for the listeners who don't yeah. recognize that part of the, the world. This is yeah. what they make television commercials out of. It's the spot in the desert where there's nothing as far as the eye can see. And you decide I'm going to tackle a thousand kilometers, basically 620 miles on a bicycle across the empty quarter. That's a big transition from sprinting to the empty quarter. So 
How did that go? And really, what was that like when you were going across the desert? So, uh, you know, I the, the the fat bike trip actually came after a year after our crossing when, and this came after the South Pole. Long story short, if you back up to the South Pole and Everest, uh, one of my mentors at the time was a guy called Sir Randall Fines, and you know he's a well-known explorer. The Guinness Book of Records calls him the greatest living explorer. Rand Fines, right. I mean, sorry, he'd been across the poles all kinds of ways. He'd never climbed Everest. It's a long story how I ended up spending a season on Everest with him. And one day playing a game of cards, because uh, that's what you do when you're stuck on Everest for seven <laughs> right, days. Yeah. You're just sitting in a tent most of the time. And I, I looked across at Rand, and on the horizon, you know, there was the idea of finishing the seven summits, which still had to happen. There was the uh-huh. idea of walking to the South Pole unsupported to be the first Africans to do that. Please talk about that for just a second, because I almost missed that one, that you're the first uh, you know, guy to do that from South Africa, which leads up to the empty quarter. Go ahead. Yeah, so we were finishing up with the seven summits, and Ren had thought we had a chance, my partner at the time, uh, who's a, a black South African guy called Sibyl Sisubilani, who was the first black guy to climb Everest. Mm-hmm. And him and I were sponsored uh, together for a season, and... Rand thought we had a chance, even though neither of us had ever skied before, to be the first Africans to ski unsupported and unassisted to the South Pole. Now, that's a 600-mile journey. You're on your own. You're carrying 400-pound sleds because you're not allowed any supplies. Mm -hmm. And and we pulled it for 65 days, and we almost never made it, but (laughs) we just made it. We carried 60 days worth of food, but it took us 65 days to get there. And and then after that, so back up back to Everest, you know, that was still on the horizon. But yeah, yeah. I said to Ran playing cards, I said, Ran, what happens if, you know, we get up the seven and we walk to the South Pole? That's great. We're the first Africans to do that. But what has never been done by anyone? And right. Ran put his book Not just the first Africans, he, but nobody. Exactly. What's never been done? And he looked across at me and he said, cross the Rub al-Khali which is mm-hmm. Arabian for the empty quarter, unsupported. Right. I'll be your patron, but I won't come with you because you're going to die. It's impossible. Yeah, you're on your own on that one, big boy. And, you know, when he said that, we chuckled and we carried on playing cards, but a seed was sown and it took a long time for the, the sort of season to be right. We had to finish the seven. We had to get to the uh-huh. South Pole. And then, you know, I woke up one day and I thought, if the greatest living explorer says it's impossible, why is he saying that? Now, interestingly, the Arabian Peninsula today is made up of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, which is the uh-huh. bulk of that land mass. Right. You've got Yemen in the south. You've got a man slightly to the east. And then above that, you've got the United Arab Emirates and then mm-hmm. Qatar, Kuwait. So it's a, it's a small sort of, well, it's actually quite big. And it had only ever been crossed by a guy called Wilfred Thesiger, a West, the only Westerner who crossed it from south to north, and he'd done it with Arabs, and they'd carried a whole lot of stuff on, on camels. Uh-huh. So it had never been done unsupported, and the reason Rand thought it was impossible was because he was stationed in Oman, the SAS, you know, yeah. that you, you're very yeah. familiar with, 
They had a long-standing treaty with the Sultan of Oman to protect the deepwater port of Muscat. Mm -hmm. And in lieu of using the port, they always had an SAS regiment stationed in Oman. And so he spent a couple of years as part of the SAS regiment in Oman, and he mm -hmm. had penetrated some degree into the empty quarter and knew it intimately and knew it was impossible. Yeah. And so that started the idea of designing a cart to try and follow Thesage's footsteps, but to do it without Arabs and to do it carrying all of our food and filling up at only three yeah. stops and carrying water. And that journey took us, well, it took about four years to design the cart and go on three other expeditions uh -huh. to test it. But the actual journey in 2013, I think, took us 40 days to walk uh, 1,200 kilometers, just three of us, you know. And then yeah. the, it was so hard that the following year we decided, no, let's do it on fat bikes with support. And so we were the first people to yeah. ride across the Arabian Desert on fat bikes. But it wasn't nearly as hard as doing it unsupported the year before. I mean, that almost killed us. I just want people to know, they put this in movies and in television commercials because it's that bad. It's that dangerous. And the fact that you conquered it, man, it just blows me away. Um, there's so much more that I want to talk about, but for just a few minutes before we wrap this episode up, I got to talk about the manga. So you decided I'm going to create a race for people like me, the 1% that's willing to leave the bell curve and go try the extreme. Describe the manga because it starts in just a couple of weeks. Describe your motivation for creating the race and really just describe the manga for people that have never heard that word before. Yes. So... In a nutshell, it's a semi-supported mountain bike race. It's a thousand kilometers, so about 700 miles, I guess, through mm -hmm. the heart of Al Karoo in the middle of summer. And Al Karoo is a semi-desert, arid place with blazing temperatures. And the Lord actually gave me the idea over a season because I had raced the Freedom Challenge multiple times, which was that winter race. Right. I'd also been to the U.S. and I'd raced the Tour Divide, which is the granddaddy uh -huh. of ultra-endurance races from Canada all the way to the Mexican border down the Rocky Mountains. Now, that's 2,700 miles, I think. Yeah. And I realized that these events profoundly shake you to the core and compel you to do more with your life. Yeah. But I've also done the simple events, like, you know, the, the two or three or four day stage race where uh -huh. you race six hours and then you spend the rest of the day in a tent, eating, drinking, sleep, start again. And those races simply weren't hard enough to profoundly affect a, a human being. Yeah. But the races that were were just too long. No one had a month to yeah. go and do a race. Yeah. You know, the, right. tour, the record is two weeks. The Freedom Challenge you know, it's a three-week adventure. So, yeah, yeah. so I realized most people are, they're not getting the opportunity to be shaken to the core. And so I thought maybe there exists a format that lies within that continuum that's in a time frame that's doable. And so, you know, the Lord kind of gave me this idea of the manga and a thousand uh -huh. kilometers. It started out as six days. We made it five days, 120 hours. And the idea was to create something that was genuinely, absolutely debilitatingly hard, but possible for yeah. a lot of people if they got their heads right and they started to discover this idea of toughness that it exists in them, but they got to push, you know, and, and yeah. five days being the format. And that's kind of how we got there. So it's nonstop. We set up five race villages where you can eat, sleep, 
have a hot shower, but you don't have to. And that's one of the fundamental differences. You mm-hmm. can arrive at two in the morning, sign in, have a plate of food, sign out, and right off into the night. It's a strategy that might suit you, you know. But it's right. always headwinds. It's always 40, so that's about 110, 115 degrees Fahrenheit, yeah. guaranteed. Yeah. The roads are terrible. They corrugated. <laughs> they're not graded. Yeah. So, you know, there's just a whole lot of conditions that make the manga insanely tough. And and that's the idea, you know, that that we – and really the racism uh, is a ministry. It connects a, a, a group of people with their maker. Right. Whether they believe yeah. it or not, people will get into the crew and they will discover something greater and more meaningful than they are. And And that's – you know that's why it's an exciting thing, and and we're super excited that you are the first ah, yeah. to do our race. <laughs> well, I'll just tell you, Alex. Um, you and I were talking about this in South Africa in May, and this race just captured my mind. I couldn't get it out of my mind. I think you set me up when you titled this subtitle the race the toughest race on earth. I was like, if it's really that tough, I got to try it, and I got to try it just to see if I have what it takes. But the truth is, I was sitting there next to you um, having dinner, and I thought to myself, the real reason why I want to give this thing a go is because I want to, there's, there's some points in your life where it is just so challenging that you have no choice but to depend on God. And there's these three words that you mentioned that I'm going to carry with me over the course of the manga in a couple of weeks. And I'm just going to see how I can experience God's might while I'm out there and really, really in need of strength. I want to experience God's majesty. The The, the desert that you're describing is stunningly beautiful. But when it gets tough and I feel like, uh, you know, I'm almost at my wit's end, I want to feel God's mercy at the same time. So I'm going out there just to get closer to to nature, but also closer to nature's creator. Or creator. Um, and thank you for creating a race like the manga for guys like you, because um, if, had you not created it, uh, had you not titled it the toughest race on earth, I would have never even uh, given it a second thought. Um, I want to wrap up this episode. I do this. Uh, this now is uh, we're several weeks into the second season of Unbeatable. Lots and lots of people all over the world listening to this podcast. And I want them to get to know Alex, the man, a little bit better. So you've heard about Alex's uh, skills on a bicycle. You've heard about him running ultra endurance uh, or on foot ultra endurance events. You've heard about him conquering mountains. But Alex... You're also a husband. You're a father. Um, you have ups and downs in life like everybody else does. But let's just say hypothetical now. You have one day with no responsibilities. There's nothing that needs to be done. There's nowhere that need that you need to go. And you can basically do whatever you want, go wherever you want, take whoever you want with you for one day and just be yourself and do whatever. What do you spend that day doing and why? So if, uh, if my wife gives me the time, I'll take the kids. Uh, so we've got three. Well, all our kids are young. Our oldest is 13, but our youngest is only two at the moment. So, you know, there's the, the, the quiet in the house is, comes at a premium. Yeah, But right. if I get the time, I would take the three kids and we would go to a neighboring uh, hill or a battlefield. You know, one of our passions is to explore uh-huh. 
the old Anglo Boer battlefields, but just to sit on those hills and just feel uh, nature, but in in an area where people fought for something greater than arbitrary, right. uh, you know, arbitrary things. They fought for the land. And, and that's an interesting, it's a, it's a really profoundly dynamic to sit 100 years later on a hill and know that there were people around you who lost their lives and, and yeah. uh, you know, that, that fought for things that count. And, and so we'll, we'll just go out and spend a couple of hours sitting in the, we call them copies, they're little hills, uh-huh. and just feel the afternoon sun or the cool breeze. And, I mean, that's, you know, yeah, that's, that's, that's the ideal way to spend an afternoon. Yeah. I, I, now and again, I'm get my wife to come out but uh you know she doesn't of like course the, yeah the well, like you i'm passionate about history and i could easily spend a day walking old battlefields and just imagining the fight that it took to you know to preserve freedom or to to win yeah. the land and all of that so um, hey, I just want to thank you for being on this episode. I want to tell you real quickly, buddy, I can't wait to see you in just a couple of weeks when I'm in my absolute worst on the manga course. And uh, and I probably will be, uh, I probably won't have a few, uh, a lot of nice things to say to you in the middle of the race, but I can't wait to see you at the end, God willing, um, in just a few weeks. Thanks for creating this race. And I'm personally hoping that I can help or that one day there is a manga event in the United States and people from all over North America can can experience the toughest race on earth. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for the support, yeah. Jeff. Thanks for being part of this show today. I could not agree more with what Alex said today. All of us have this uh opportunity, all of us have this DNA inside of us that allows us to go out and to face the biggest challenges. The question is, are you willing to get off the couch and give it a try? Are you willing to, this is the language that Alex used today, cross over the Rubicon River and decide I'm going to go pursue a passion. I'm going to go chase a dream and it might not work out in my favor, but at least I'm going to give it a try. I hope you were really inspired by Alex today. Hey, normally I would ask you to follow us on social media. Normally I would offer you this free PDF guide called our survival guide. Normally I would ask you to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform. But today I want to wrap this up by doing something different. I am competing in the manga as a fundraiser and actually to raise awareness for veterans that are struggling after they leave the military. So I'm doing this manga event as a fundraiser for the Three Rangers Foundation. And if you would be willing to participate, if you'd be willing to support, if you just want to follow me on the race course, I want you to go ahead and go to my website, jeffstruker.com, and then click the tab that says manga. I'll put the link right here in the notes, but go to jeffstruker.com slash manga and you can follow me on the course. But even better, if you would be willing, make a small donation because 100% of what you give is going to, to, to the Three Rangers Foundation and to support warriors that are struggling when they leave the, the military. Thank you for joining me this week, and I'll see you, God willing, right back here next week on Unbeatable.